Set your coordinates and lock in your location because it's time for the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the meeting place to talk sports, pop culture, and everything in between. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode four of the Sports Refuge podcast. I'm Earl Holland, your host and editor of the Sports Refuge sports blog. This is the show where we talk about sports and whatever else comes to mind. Mitchell Northam's career in journalism has seen him go from a small startup newspaper to a small town newspaper before moving on to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as a reporter covering North Fulton County. In between that, Northam has plied his trade and honed his skills, writing for a number of online sports outlets including Fansighted and SB Nation, writing on a broad range of topics including college football and basketball, the NBA, and Major League Soccer. In this interview recorded in January 2018, we discuss how Northam got into writing, how basketball became his sport of choice to write about, and his path to journalism. We also talk about his interest in rap and hip-hop music, the dream events he'd love to attend as both a reporter and a spectator, and how he earned the moniker of Primetime Mitch. Without further ado, here's my interview with Mitchell Northam. This week, with me, a writer to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Fulton News, a man of many talents who does a lot of writing and does a lot of things. Mitchell Northam, if you guys remember the show, Martin, he's the equivalent of Hustle Man. So, Mitch, how are you doing today? I'm good. Always good talking to somebody else uh, from back home. So, Mitch, just tell me how you got in to your passion of journalism. I know you've done an assortment of things and we'll talk about those a little bit later, but what led you to writing? I guess the love of writing. I guess I would start as a junior at Colonel High School. I took a, uh, it was a new class. We had never had the class before. Um, I needed an elective to fill. So guidance counselor just threw me in this class with a teacher that I really liked. Who I'm still friends with today. Uh, her name is Sia North. So I took a creative writing class and uh, liked it a lot. And she gave me a ton of encouragement and stuff. So I sort of just hung on to that and kind of stuck with it and um, still really by the time I graduated wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do with my life I thought that I wanted to be a teacher and coach high school football so I decided to study how to be a teacher first semester there I took a teaching class and uh, I hated it and so uh, kind of talked with a few people about you know I think this writing thing is really something I want to prove and actually <clears throat> my English teacher at Warwick um, she gave me a ton of encouragement and uh, uh, you know, told me I was a good writer and stuff and just sort of started down that path. And my dad was the one who uh, encouraged me to kind of start a blog. So, yeah, I started like a little sports blog and kind of just plugged away at that for a year. And then uh, I started putting myself out there and getting some freelance gigs. I did some stuff for the Star Democrat there in Easton. There used to be a, uh, a weekly paper there in Salisbury. I think that maybe only lasted about four months. It was called Delmar for Crossroads. Uh, I did some stuff for them. And then uh, I was doing stuff for the Star Dam. I started just, you know, writing about high school hoops, probably at this point, uh, maybe like the winter, like December 2012. And uh, a guy by the name of Edgar Walker, who uh, works for Bleacher Report now, but he used to have a website called uh, mdhoops.net. He asked if I would write for him. Um, so I did. And then that turned into basically he merged with DMV Elite, their organization that helps run the Big Governor Challenge now there in Salisbury. So I just did a lot of writing for free, a lot of writing for, you know, a little bit of pay, but not a ton. I started doing some stuff for SB Nation for uh, their blog that covered uh, DC United, just writing little blog posts here and there. I ended up going to Salisbury University. Uh, I wrote for their student newspaper. Um, and I mean, it was one of those things where like once I just caught the bug of writing sports, I just haven't lost it. Uh, just stuff for different SB Nation blogs. Covered DC United one summer for, uh, I think it was summer 2014 for a website called soccervibes.net. So that was pretty cool. It was kind of my first experience as like a credentialed reporter going into a pro locker room. So that was really cool. 
uh, interning, um, you know, you, you were still at the Daily Times and when I was an intern and was the sports editor at uh, the university paper. Um, so, yeah, just did a lot of different hustling things. And then uh, by the time I graduated, there was a uh, position open there at the Daily Times when uh, Ted Shoffley was the editor. And I think it was a uh, I started out as a general assignment breaking news reporter. So I did that for a while and then full time. And then, uh, you know, you and uh, Sean ended up leaving um, to go on to uh, different jobs. So Ted put me into the sports reporter job and I did that for about just about two years here at the AJC, uh, not covering sports right now, which, uh, you know, something I realized I miss a lot. But, you know, uh, I'm hoping to get back into it soon. I'm still doing a little freelance stuff on the side covering sports. So that was sort of my path. I guess that's a long story, the step by step so far. You write about a lot of basketball, and I'm assuming that basketball has to be your number one sport. What is it that drew you to basketball? Uh, I don't know, because in high school, like I never played basketball on a team. But in high school, I always loved going to the basketball games. I played football and threw shot and disc for the track team uh, in the spring. So winter, I really didn't have a lot to do. I would lift weights for football. Um, and I think I was kind of first drawn to it because my mom was the cheerleading coach um, when I was in middle school. So I would go along the games with her and the games were always packed. They were always tons of fun. And uh, when I was uh, kind of, like I said, uh, hustling, um, one of my friends, uh, Josh Weber, who runs the clock at Y High, um, he was like, hey, you should just come out to a Y High game. I had never been to a game at Y High before. You know, I went to Colonel. So, uh, you know, most of the basketball games I've been to have been kind of in that north uh, Bayside area. Got a chance to meet uh, Coach Waller, and we still have a pretty friendly relationship today. Um, and he taught me a ton about the game. You know, once I started writing about basketball, I realized that, you know, I, was, I liked it a lot. Right now, I'm covering mid-major college ranks for SB Nation. Really wasn't that into it, uh, you know, when I was younger, but it's definitely something you know, that, that I really enjoy writing about now and uh, I can get back into full time, but you know, we'll see. What do you feel people think it's the greatest misconception about basketball, especially the way it's played? Greatest misconception. Um, I think a lot of people, as it relates to the pro game, you hear a lot of people say that they don't play any defense. Um, and I think that's just because, you know, a lot of times what they see, the people who don't really watch it, they go to ESPN or they see the highlights on their phone. I mean, you don't see defensive highlights ever. I mean, you see dunks and you see three-pointers and high scores and stuff. So I think that's the biggest, you know, there, there's a lot of great teams out there. The Warriors are really, I think a lot of people think of them as an offensive team. They're so successful because they're a defensive team. I mean, they have all these guys who, you know, are outside of Steph Curry, um, who's a little guy, um, but all these guys who are like at least six, seven with these arms um, and can switch on different defenders. I mean, Draymond and KD and Iguodala and Klay Thompson. I mean, all those guys can guard every position. The Spurs are one of the great defensive teams. I mean, those Memphis Grizzly teams with like Zach Randolph and Tony Allen and those guys, I mean, that was grit and grind. Those were defensive teams. Um, so I think that's uh, definitely about the pro game, one of the misconceptions. Yeah, that's probably the biggest one for me. I, every time, uh, you know, I talk to somebody who doesn't really watch basketball, they're just like, oh, well, they don't play any defense. I mean, well, they do. You just have to pay attention. We talk about watching on TV and they look like average size guys. But then when you stand next to them in real life, you're still looking up at them regardless. Oh, yeah, that's definitely a shocker. Uh, I think the biggest kind of um, kind of wow moment I had uh, for me for that was um, it was actually at a soccer game. My first time going into the locker room, 
went to go interview Bill Hamid, who was DC United's goalkeeper for a long time. One of the best goalkeepers in MLS. He's playing overseas now. Um, but I went up to go interview him and I didn't realize how big this dude, he's just, you know, he's got this big chest and um, he's, he had to be six, five. And I just, you know, looked straight up at him. Um, so yeah, that was definitely uh, one that kind of shocked me. Um, and there's been a couple college guys who have kind of just been amazed by how big these dudes are um, in person. And pro too, I went and covered a Wizards game once and, um, you know, went to interview John Wall after the game. We're all kind of huddled around and I was able to kind of get my mic to him. And, you know, I still had to look up at John Wall and you look at, you know, you're watching on TV and you think John Wall is not that big guy. I think th- there's a misconception with point guards is like, we're watching on TV. We just all think that they're all like five, seven, which actually, you know, John Wall is like six, four or something. So, you know, I- I'm about five, 11, six flat. Maybe that's being generous. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, all these athletes, they're really big dudes. I mean, I, I'm where I've uh, interviewed a guy who is, you know, shorter than me or about the same height. I've interviewed a couple, you know, college guards who have actually been shorter than me. But, uh, you know, when it comes to pro basketball and even soccer, um, you know, these are big dudes um, who spend a lot of time working on their body. So, uh, yeah, seeing them in person is a shock sometimes. Covering D.C. United, you had to trek to RFK a lot. What is it like going up in that, I guess, old building, especially I know I've been there a couple of times to attend the sporting events and the walk up there is maddening, just going around the spires and just going up the different levels. And I say FedEx is worse, but right. RFK just being so old and I guess you can <laughs> antique and archaic. Yeah, RFK um, was really cool because I grew up as a Steelers fan, but my stepdad um, is a Redskins fan. So, you know, I'd watch NFL film stuff or hear him tell stories about the old RFK and uh, stuff like that. I never got a chance to go there until I went to see a DC United game in person. Um, And it was funny, the first game I went to there just as a fan, I think this was like 2011, went with my brother and a few of his friends. And my brother, who's you know, half the size that I am went to go sit down in his chair and it just broke. Um, you know, the, the stadium, uh, I think everybody says this about RFK. Um, you know, it was a dump, but it was our dump, meaning like the DC fans. It was a one of a kind stadium, I think, in uh world, you know, where you have all these stadiums that are just souped up and stuff. It's crazy that, you know, in, in 2017, a, a MLS team played in, you know, what we have down here in Atlanta and RFK because they're just totally opposite and totally different. Yeah, RFK was, like I said, it was a dump, but it was still pretty cool. They still had the dugouts there and stuff from when the Nationals played there. You know, it seems like they're probably going to tear it down at some point. I don't know when that's going to happen. I think it'd be cool. I I don't even know if this will happen. Maybe if DC United could play like a friendly there one more time. It'd be really cool if the Redskins could play there one more time before they tear it down. Maybe a preseason game. But uh, yeah, that stadium is definitely one of a kind and seeing a lot of great moments. It's rare you get a soccer team, a baseball team, and a football team to all play one stadium at different times. So it's definitely seen a lot of great moments. You know, the return of baseball to Washington and all those John Riggins runs and uh, DC United won. I think four championships playing in that stadium. So, you know, uh, it was cool. When it comes to watching an event as a spectator, as opposed to being a journalist, what are some of the things you try to separate from the journalistic side of you as a fan? It's been weird um, kind of, you know, working in sports journalism and then still going to some games as a fan. A lot of times I'll be sitting there, you know, and I'll go to games with my girlfriend or my buddies or whoever. And a lot of times I'll be sitting there and basically start thinking about like how I would write, you know, the story of the game. But I try to just... uh, 
I, I try to, it's funny, like, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't have to try to be a fan. Like, you know, I always love the Steelers and um, I always love the Orioles. Um, I really don't have to try with those, but sometimes going to games, it's like, you know, I, I've lost like some investment uh, as a fan in some teams just from being a sports reporter, but I can still go to Orioles games and scream, oh, as loud as, you know, as any of them go to Steelers games and, you know, throw my terrible tie around. I threw a temper tantrum here in my living room uh, two weeks ago when they lost that game to New England. still can't believe that. But uh, yeah, it's definitely different um, going back to games as a fan now um, when you've been kind of going as a reporter or a photographer um, for a long time. Um, and I really haven't even been doing this that long. I guess about five years or so, but I can still be a fan. I kind of thought for a while I might lose that. Um, but no, I, I, uh, I still have it. And one thing you probably notice, especially being a fan, if a game looks like it's pretty much locked up and then everything changes, you're thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not the one that has to blow up my whole gamer because of that. I'm glad I'm not on deadline for this, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the blowing up the gamer, everybody's had that one time where they felt like everything's good. Now you got to blow up the gamer. How do you try to minimize the damage of how much you have to change in the story when it changes on a dime? Yeah, like I said, I haven't had to do that lately um, because I haven't, you know, been covering sports full time uh, for the past year, just kind of on a freelance basis. I'm trying to figure out how, um, I guess probably probably the last time I had to do it was in 2016 when Salisbury's lacrosse team went to uh, the national title game there in Philly. And it was just back and forth, back and forth the whole time. And Salisbury ended up winning by one goal at the last couple moments there. Um, and I just try to, you know, when I'm writing a gamer, like not kind of write, you know, as the game is going along, I try to just write down a word document on the side where I'll try to just write down kind of moments or maybe I just have a little notepad and I'm jotting down stuff. Um, just moments or facts of the game that I know are going to be important. And then later I can go in and figure out you know what was the most important and all that um but it, it is tough sometimes but you know i kind of like it uh you know you get that just kind of adrenaline rush trying you know pound out stuff on deadline but uh there's a lot of people out there that think that uh you know we have easy jobs but uh it can be difficult sometimes but you know when it all comes out at the end and you get to kind of see what you did you know when it's in, in paper or online um it's it's pretty cool i would write from the bottom up i would go my yeah, killer yeah. quote at the end then work my way up and that would depend. If it's a news story, I'd do the same and then work my way up because that opening lead, that opening graph was sometimes the toughest thing to write. And it would take you maybe a half hour, hour to struggle with it. And it would really pull you down. I would just try from the bottom to the top, working my way up and then working in reverse fashion. Yeah, a lot of times I would, uh, you know, I still do this sometimes today, you know, no matter what the story is, you know, if it's a story that's going to have, uh, you know, that I did a bunch of interviews for or that I maybe did only, you know, one or two or three interviews for. A lot of times I'll just transcribe all the quotes first and just kind of have them on the side. I figured out that kind of helps me get kind of the juices flowing on how I want to kind of start the story because maybe there's a quote or something or maybe I just talk to that person about something that I can kind of paraphrase into a lead and not necessarily something I want to quote. But yeah, that it's it can be difficult sometimes to kind of, you know, start on a story. But I don't know what you mean. Sometimes you're looking at the quotes and you're like, all right, that's the money one that's going to go here. Yeah, for sure. I definitely get that feeling. And what I did in the case of a situation where I had to blow the gamer up, I'd go with the guts of it first, especially if I'm knowing I'm just going to put one quoteless online. I'd go with the guts first and maybe change some tenses here and there if I need to. So that way I'll wait till that final out or wait till that final play and then just go from there. I've tried not to have to blow up as much as I needed to. I just put the key points there and just go straight from it. 
Yeah, blowing up the gamer uh, is is not fun, you know, when you have it all pretty much written. Um, but like I said, sometimes it can be fun, you know, when you kind of that rush and, you know, sometimes good stuff comes out in those uh, those pressure situations, you know, take the good with the bad. Now, you also mentioned you are a Steelers fan, but an Orioles fan as well. That has to be interesting, especially going to the Baltimore games. I'm a Redskins fan in addition to being an Orioles fan. It is a unique dynamic sometimes. Yeah, yours is a little bit more uh, easy to explain. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, people ask me about it all the time. They'll see me wearing, you know, Orioles hat one day, and I think I got a Steelers hat on now. Yeah. I always just explain to people that, you know, the Ravens didn't exist when I was a kid. Baltimore didn't have a football team until I was six or seven. So, you know, and my dad uh, growing up, I mean, he basically became a Steelers fan because his dad was a Cowboys fan. And, uh, you know, they watched the Super Bowl together and he wanted to root against his dad. And, uh, you know, growing up in the 70s, you know, the Steelers were really, really good, won four Super Bowls. Um, so that's how my dad, because he grew up on the Eastern Shore, too, and the Baltimore Colts existed then. So that's how he became a Steelers fan. By the time I was born, Baltimore didn't have a football team at all. And uh, so I just kind of followed him. And, you know, growing up in Maryland, you know, he, he was an Orioles fan uh he didn't sway away from that but uh yeah so i basically just you know took those two teams from uh from my dad and uh they've stuck with me so you've transitioned from living in maryland and moving down to georgia and you've transitioned from writing primarily sports back to writing news what's the transition like first from the move from maryland to georgia yeah uh it was tough you know, I lived in Maryland for uh, most of my life, um, went to went to school, got my first job in Maryland. And, you know, it, it might have been a little different if um, I was still in the state, but maybe I got my first job across the bridge um, because I thought I just kind of maybe owed it to myself to just kind of see what else was out there. So, you know, yeah, like I said, about two years into my job at the Daily Times, I kind of just started looking around online and seeing what was open and AGC for a uh, for a news reporter and uh, I applied for it and uh, to my surprise got an interview and uh, thought it would be something that I could do and something that I would like and maybe it would be you know not so bad to get away from sports for a little bit and just kind of you know write some news and stuff and get into some city council meetings and all that for a little bit um, and so yeah I interviewed for it and all that and I got the job and kind of talked it over from my parents and some people and uh, you know kind of figured I had to just go for it so yeah I mean moving away was definitely hard because I had lived one place for close to 20 years so it definitely wasn't easy um the thing that made it a little bit easier is you know when i was a kid my mom actually grew up down here um just south of atlanta so my grandparents lived here so you know summers when i was a kid we would come down here and hang out with my grandparents um they lived just south of atlanta in a little uh city called riverdale so you know i knew the city a little bit kind of knew the dynamics of it um i did not know how bad traffic was down here it's the worst it's, uh, you know, if you uh, take DC traffic and multiply that by like 10, then you get Atlanta traffic. I don't really know why it's that bad. I think they just, the city became populated faster than they could build roads. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's been good just to kind of see a city and get out and explore it and stuff. But I really miss the Eastern Shore. Um, you know, that's always going to be home for me. Definitely hasn't been easy either, but, you know, it's been good to kind of get a, a, it's a different journalism muscle. Because, um, you know, before when I was with the Daily Times, I was, you know, writing sports. But a lot of times there wasn't, you know, we kind of got away from doing a whole lot of gamers down here. I really haven't been able to do a lot of feature stuff. And that's not bad. It's been a lot of just, you know, straight hard news. Um, but it's really working a different kind of journalism and writing muscle for me. But, uh, you know, it, it's been good to kind of just get that experience. But, you know, I think, you know, someday down the road, I'll probably, you know, look to get back into sports. But right now, you know, it's all good. 
It's interesting. We initially were going to schedule this to record it on a Friday and you had a trial. And I was going to ask you about the trial. It's funny doing cops and courts. I did that as well. I always saw it similar to sports trials, at least where it's like a press conference or a sporting event. Whatever you see out there is the truth. Nothing filtered, nothing being omitted, nothing being lied about. What you see is what you get. Right. There's a lot of similarities between uh, covering a uh, trial or an election. Um, definitely elections. You know, there's always a winner and a loser. There's always, you know, something newsy. Um, you know, you go to a city council meeting, you don't just recap, you know, well, councilman so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. No, you got to find, you know, did they sign off on, uh, you know, some budget thing? You know, when you go and cover a football game, you're not going to give the whole play by play, but you're going to, you know, identify when, you know, so and so scored that uh, 66 yard touchdown run that, you know, kind of flipped the game on its head. Definitely a lot of similarities because, yeah, I hear people a lot of times, you know, people who have, you know, either either covered news for a long time or covered sports for a long time. They feel like they can't do the other thing, but I haven't found it to be that hard. I mean, it, there are a lot of differences, but a lot of similarities, too, I, I think. Yeah, I think there's a far less amount of FOIAs that you have to apply for for sports as opposed to... Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, not a ton of uh, FOIA uh, stuff in sports, but a little bit. I uh, I did, I think I filed maybe two or three FOIAs when I was doing uh, Sports of the Daily Times. But uh, one of them was for, uh, you know, Wacomico County signed that contract with Under Armour, and I just wanted to see <laughs> what the contract looked like. So, but uh, yeah, there are opportunities for that in sports, but definitely more when you're covering a uh, hard news uh, beat. Especially for the people who may not know what FOIA means, it's Freedom of Information Act. There's a lot of stuff that, that you got to apply for. What is that process like filling out a FOIA form? It's not fun. <laughs> um, it, uh, you know, I... I Basically, uh, yeah, you, you kind of have to make sure you kind of have all your ducks in a row and uh, have all the information that you want. You know, you basically just have to outline everything you want in that uh, for your request. And, you know, we kind of had a template uh, that we followed there at the Daily Times and AGC as one, too. And, uh, you know, you send it off and they have a certain amount of time they have to respond to you by. So, I mean, once you send it, it's really just a waiting game and it can take, you know, 30 days. It can take a month or two. It's, it's not fun, but it's necessary, you know, sometimes to, uh, to get that information that isn't readily available to you. But it's information that is public and that you should have. I know sometimes the waiting effect can be a pain, and I've done that before, and I always thought, wow, is it really this pressing? Some places will just drag it out, and I always feel like that can be one of the most frustrating things, that if you were trying to plan on writing something now, you may have to wait a month to start doing that, and I feel like that can, well, not be detrimental to a story, but it can be frustrating in writing something. A lot of time can pass between, you know, you filling it out, but, you know, somebody's got to do it. What do you think is maybe the biggest misconception people have about journalists and reporters in general? I know people used to ask me, hey, do you get paid by the story? And I always tell them, if I did, I'd actually have worked harder. <laughs> uh, well, there's actually some some websites out there that kind of have that model. Um, not that I agree with it. I think, I mean, now in the current political climate we have, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't really understand what we do. I think out there that just write whatever we want um, and just make stuff up. And that's not how it works. Uh, you get fired that way. But uh, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. I, just, I think people just don't understand like what it's like. There's a lot of people out there that just don't really understand, you know, what a journalist's main function is. Our job is to, to support it, you know, not to make stuff up. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, just think we're out to get people. And uh, that's that's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to present the public with uh, with information and let them make their own decisions. 
What do you feel is the biggest sin for a reporter or journalist to do? Biggest sin? Um, I would definitely say just making anything up, whether it's a quote or, you know, part of a story or anything. Lying or any sort of that uh, is basically the worst. I mean, it's the opposite of, like I said, what, what a journalist is supposed to do, supposed to seek truth, find the truth, and then report it and present it to the public. So I think if you're making any part of what you're reporting up, if you're just pulling it from thin air, then that's, that's not a good thing. And yeah, I think that's probably the worst thing a journalist can do. Jump in transitions here. It's funny, you see a lot of movies that maybe are set in newspapers and those tend to get a lot of more of the glamour and the the Oscar buzz and things like that. But you ever notice there really aren't that many TV shows that really are centered around the newspaper? Maybe they have a newspaper as a setting, but it isn't really centered around the paper itself. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of journalism. uh, um, But yeah, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's just not a... uh a good uh, function for a TV show. I'm not sure. Um, definitely saw Spotlight. I love that. Um, I think one of the uh, issues that a lot of people have with the kind of journalism movies or TV shows is sometimes they make the reporters out to be like heroes. And, you know, that's not, I think a lot of times what the reporter's intention is. Like I said, you know, we're not trying to be heroes. We're not trying to seek the spite. A lot of times we're just trying to, like I said, you know, seek truth. But uh, yeah, I haven't seen a whole lot of TV shows about uh, you know newspapers out there. Maybe maybe that'll be the next uh, idea for a Netflix series. When I think of shows that sort of were set in newsrooms, first thing that comes to mind is Lois and Clark. And even uh, then, yeah. I think they over-exaggerate what a really a newspaper reporter does. And the other one's Perfect Strangers, but even then, they didn't really talk about the paper itself. It just was used as a setting. One of the best, it's just, you know, season five of The Wire um, really kind of takes you inside the uh, the Baltimore Sun newsroom there and kind of uses that as a uh, mechanism to, you know, further tell the story of that show um, and kind of tell it from the uh, newsroom's kind of point of view. Um, so that's probably one I would point to, you know, if you wanted to watch, a, if anybody out there wants to watch a TV show about uh uh, you know, watch The Wire in whole and if you haven't seen it, but definitely, you know, go to season five. And uh, I think that's the shortest season. I think it's only maybe eight episodes or so. But, um, you know, definitely check that one out. We had always said that, especially as a newspaper reporter, the day is mostly spent, well, depending on what you're covering, is mainly spent on making calls, waiting for people to call you back and then writing and following before deadline. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of days like that. Yeah, maybe that's another thing. It just doesn't seem like it's the glamorous life, and we don't all eat Chinese food all the time or Thai food as <laughs> as, uh, as yeah. stereotyped in most of those shows. Yeah, a lot of those TV shows, yeah, you just kind of see the reporters at their desk, and, you know, we're not always just sitting at our desk. Uh, we're, you know, out and talking to people, and, you know, if you're a sports reporter, you're at a basketball game or in a coach's office or whatever, or reporter, you're at a city council or talking to a source or you know, wherever you are. Yeah. A lot of those, you know, TV shows and, and movies. Yeah. They got the uh, reporter, you know, kind of with the tie all drawn out and, you know, feet kicked up on the desk and eating a box of Chinese food and waiting for that all. And, you know, just kind of then pounding on the keyboard and stuff. And it's not exactly like that. People can have imaginations. Yeah. I don't even know how many people even wear a tie in the newsroom anymore. <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I don't think I've ever worn a tie in the newsroom. Yeah, my cousin, actually, when he worked down at a paper in Harrisonburg, and I think you know him through Ann Dennis, he actually said that the males had to wear a shirt and tie. Everybody, sports, news, everything. Man, yeah, no, I uh, think the only time I wore a tie in the Daily Times newsroom was when the later in the day I was leaving to go to a funeral. So yeah, not a whole lot of ties in, uh, in the business of uh, sports reporting. And I don't think I've wore a tie in the AGC newsroom either. It's usually a pair of slacks and a polo. 
Yeah, I can't think of the last time I wore a tie. Maybe going to and from MDDC Awards and coming back to work oh, and yeah. actually working. But other than that, no, I can't say I have. It's, it's even weird when you see people not even wearing a polo shirt, when you just wear not even a shirt with a collar. That's, that's even weird seeing somebody. Maybe that's reserved for weekends. I know it was always a, a Cardinal said, especially talking to Ben, about no shorts in the newsroom. Oh, no shorts yet. I, uh, times, uh, a lot of times, um, but, uh, I don't know. Bosses there were cool with it. I guess as a sports reporter, I was just, you know, I was out and especially in the summertime, you're out at those fields and stuff so much. I mean, I, I, for the most part, my outfit, uh, when I was working at the daily times was a pair of cargo shorts and, uh, a polo. I even remember, I think I wore shorts to work one day in like December and, uh, I got a so Camish was outside and uh, said something to me about uh, I was crazy for wearing shorts. But uh, yeah, that was uh, sort of my thing. But yeah, I got down here at the AJC and um, yeah, that's a uh, that's a strict no-no here. No, uh, no shorts in the newsroom. So I can get away with it up in Salisbury, but not here. And one thing I've noticed, especially seeing by your tweet, you're big into hip hop and rap. I do not listen to it as much anymore. I feel like I've sort of maybe been in arrested state since 2000. Everything I felt, a lot of stuff since 2000, really hasn't been good, in my opinion. I mean, there's a few things here and there, but you're definitely more into rap than I am. How did you get drawn into that? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so that's another one. Uh, actually, it's funny uh, through my, uh, this is going to sound weird, but through my mom and uh, cheerleading. So my mom was, you know, my sister's cheerleading coach or whatever. So probably with grade. So she was in middle school and, you know, so my mom coached her in the Pop Warner cheerleading stuff. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I would listen to, uh, you know, Will Smith and stuff like, to, you know, G-rated rap. Uh, so, you know, I listened to, you know, Will Smith and uh, I had the Space Jam album and, you know, fun stuff like that. But when my mom was coaching, you know, my sister and cheerleading, they were getting ready to do the competition thing and they had to make like a mix tape thing to do like a routine to and one of the main songs that they used was bombs over baghdad by outcast so my mom bought the stankonia cd and uh basically ripped from that to like this tape that they made their big mix to and once she was done with the cd i mean you know my mom's not really gonna listen to outcast so i just kind of swiped it and uh started listening to it and really liked it and basically that's how i got into uh, i was probably like i said in like the fifth grade or something like that and it's just yeah it's just you know something i've always listened to yeah since then basically um i'm still a huge outcast fan there's some new stuff that comes out now that i really like like there was two albums this year i liked one was uh, Forever is a Mighty Long Time by Big Crit. Two Chains' new album, I think it's called Pretty Girls Like Trap Music. Those are two that like I like this year. There's a lot of stuff out there, though, that I'm just not with that kind of, I think they call it mumble rap, basically. It's like <laughs> Rich Homie Kwan and Young Thug and a couple of those other guys and Migos. And I'm just, it's not really for me, and that's fine. You know, I think rap is sort of, you know, rap and hip hop are sort of, the voice of sort of young people and you know if that's what the young people are into then that's great i kind of stopped listening to new stuff for the most part basically probably like when i was like a sophomore in college um and kind of started listening to a lot of older stuff like i love notorious big love outcast um love goody mob but yeah as far as like kind of the new rappers go i really like big crit he just kind of has a uh he kind of just has an old school feeling to him. It has kind of this country kind of mess out to it, uh, just kind of bebop stuff. So, yeah, that, there's definitely some stuff out there, I think, that's still for me. But for the most part, it's not. Really, funny thing is, I'm not really a Biggie fan. I, I prefer Tupac, and that feels like that whole Biggie, Tupac, who's better thing will go on till the end of time. I have one Biggie song, a lot of Tupacs, um, Snoop. 
Yeah. I don't think it's much Eminem, but yeah, definitely Eminem. A lot of older well, stuff. Out with the new album. I haven't heard it yet, though. I've heard mixed reviews about it. But yeah, yeah, I definitely listened to a lot of Eminem growing up. Yeah, oh, I got LL Cool J. Aside from like the Sugar Hill Gang and things like that, Mystical is definitely one of the... Uh, oh, yeah. It feels like you always have to split it up. Like Eminem, free drugs, post-drugs, Mystical, pre-jail. Pre-jail, Mystical, <laughs> pretty much everything. Bouncing back, danger. Uh, those are probably two of, two of my favorite ones. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely, there's a lot of rappers out there that have the uh, the pre and post-drug era or the pre and post-jail uh, era. Those are always uh, fun to compare. But um, yeah, I think the post-drug Eminem is actually one album that came out when I was, I think, a freshman in college. It was really good, and I can't remember the name now. I can see the album cover. I, I don't remember, but like I said, there's some stuff that comes out now that, you know, is still, I think, for me and, you know, I enjoy listening to it, but there's a lot of stuff that I'm just like, all right, you know, I just kind of accept it. I'm like, all right, this is for the kids. It's not for me, but that's okay. <laughs> you mentioned Space Jam, and I have to say that's probably one of the best sports soundtracks ever. So many songs that were on there, and it doesn't matter. I can't even remember the whole soundtrack, but I can just think of those five or six songs on there that really stick out. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff uh, on there. I, I found it a few years ago. I had the CD. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on there. There's this one song. It's like Method Man, Red Man, LL Cool J, and somebody else. Bust the Rhymes, uh, Hit Em High. Yeah, yeah, Hit Em High. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, there's some stuff on there. You know, R. Kelly and uh, I think Monica has a song on there. Um, there's that Quad City DJ song. There's Yeah, it's, it's a good one. It's, it's a good soundtrack. Yeah, I really can't think of any other sports movie that had a soundtrack that good. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, I don't know, the movie soundtrack, I think, has kind of become something of a dinosaur, you know, a good movie soundtrack. You know, I don't think you see a lot of people out there, you know, buying the, you know, uh, the latest uh, movie or whatever it is. And that's that's sort of uh, something that was like an 80s and 90s thing, I think. Yeah, and I feel like those movies, that's probably some of the better soundtrack. It's like, you can get anything like by John Williams. John Williams is probably the preeminent movie film conductor. So many different sure. songs, so many different themes, from Jaws to Star Wars to Superman to Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones. It's just too many to name. It's kind of cool. He, uh, you know, there's some new stuff that he does in the new Star Wars movie with that soundtrack, but there's also a couple moments where he kind of calls back and he'll pull like a little bit for like a new hope or a song he did from Empire or one he did from Phantom Menace in with the new stuff. It's cool. And I think they use a little bit of the Superman theme in Justice League where it's a little bit darker, okay. but they use the original one and on a darker scale. you got to really like listen to it real close, but apparently that's up on YouTube now, so those things are a little easier to pick up on. But it's just so crazy. I feel like with music, music can, can always lead you back to a point of this thing happened in your life, and I remember this song is that soundtrack of it. Totally. Every time I, uh, there's a song by uh, Young Jeezy, Akon, and I think Lil Wayne, it's called um, I'm So Paid. And every time I hear that song, I think of uh, Wrecking My Car in High School because that's a song I was listening to when it happened. <laughs> but uh, yeah, aside from that very specific moment, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of songs out there that I'll hear and it just take me back to a moment. Yeah, music a lot of ways, a time machine just kind of takes you back to some certain things. Yeah, I remember 50 Cent, Get Rich or Die Trying. I want to say his first album because I always, because one of my favorite 50 Cent songs is How to Rob. And that's, <laughs> and that's a, uh, that's a classic <laughs> one. But, but yeah, Get Rich or Die Trying. That, a lot of those songs on that album, I do like, it takes me back to, oh wow, early 2000s, before I graduated college. And it's like, yeah, it just makes you think, wow, it's been so long. 
Yep. Yeah. A lot of stuff I'll, I'll hear. And I was just like, oh, man, that song came out when I was like a freshman in high school or that song came out when I was in the seventh grade or, you know, something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny, just living in those different times, it's like, wow, 1997. Hell, I remember hearing Hit Me Baby One More Time. I'm either a sophomore or a freshman <laughs> in high school, and it's like, yeah, I remember all the girls were going through that Britney Spears phase. Yeah, I, when I, whenever I hear uh, a 50 Cent game, I always think about uh, middle school. That was like a song that they would play at the middle school dances, and uh, my friends and I really liked. That's a, that's a fun one. And it's always funny when you listen, like, man, really? Should they be playing this song? (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like, man, they played this at my middle school dance. That's wild. Jumping back into the sports thing, I know we diverge a little on music, but it was very interesting doing that. Is there one sporting event you would love to attend either as a journalist or as a fan? I have a couple things on my bucket list. Um, I crossed one off in 2016 when I got to cover the Army-Navy game. That was a one-kind experience, and I'd love to go back as a fan. Um, But covering it as a reporter was really cool, too. It was the first time Army had won in like, I think, 14 years, something like that. But it it was a long time. But yeah, now I would say uh, on my bucket list, I would like to cover the NCAA tournament or just go to it as a fan. Even Um, I'd love to get to one of those. And I think one of the cool things would be, you know, not even necessarily the championship game, but like, you know, the early round and maybe, you know, get a chance to see one of these, you know, mid-major teams upset a power like Duke or something like that. I think that would be really cool. Or even going to that in Dayton, um, I think that would be a cool experience. Um, So those are definitely two things on my bucket list. I'd love to go to an Olympics winter or summer. Um, I think that would be really cool. And you get a chance to see, you know, some uh, sports that you're not really exposed to on a regular basis and kind of, you know, if, if I got a chance to cover it as a reporter kind of get the chance to you know tell the story of a shot putter or a archer or uh somebody who uh is great at curling or you know something like that i think that would be really cool um so those would probably be the two big things the ncaa tournament and the olympics i just want to see an orioles world series uh sometime in my lifetime I would like to as well. Last time they won one was the year I was born. Last thing I want it to be is the year I die. I'd like to definitely like to see uh, an Orioles World Series sometime in my lifetime. One of my greatest memories, you know, going to a sporting event as a fan was uh, the 2012 game two of the 2012 ALCS. It was like the first time the Orioles had hosted a playoff game since, you know, the 90s against the Yankees with my dad and uh, two of his buddies from work. And I saw the video on my phone. Um, Jim Johnson struck out A-Rod for the last out and in yards just went the loudest I've ever heard it. It was awesome. And that's funny. I was going to go to that 2012 series, but at the point I ended up paying for a class at SU to learn how to shoot video. So I had no money to go to that one. And I ended up going to 2014. I went to game one of 2014 against Detroit where they had a lead. Detroit started coming back. Andrew Miller came in and then they busted it open late in the game. Who knew that it would set up the next day even better with that uh, Delman Young triple? I believe it was a triple, or was I know the bases loaded, bases clearing hit. I don't know if it was a triple or double, but that was the one that had to be the most insane playoff game in Baltimore baseball history in a while. I forgot about 2014 a little bit, but uh, yeah, Delman Young, yeah, that was a fun year too. They've you know the Buck Showalter era, they've definitely had some fun years. I think it's probably I think it might come to an end soon, and I really don't want to see them trade Machado. But, uh, you know, it's been some fun years. Definitely much better than, uh, you know, the 2000s were. Yeah, and I remember I missed out on a playoff game going to one of my friends in 1996 or 97. I'm like, okay, maybe I'll get to go to the next year. And then that 15 years of losing baseball, and it it almost didn't look like it was ever going to come back. A chance to go to the playoffs. Yeah, 
Yeah, those were uh, those were some rough times. Well, Mitch, I do appreciate you participating in this week's interview. And how can people catch up with some of your work? Sure. Uh, yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm at Primetime Mitch on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you can just search my name. Uh, I'm on Instagram at the same handle. You can head over to the AGC.com and see some of my stuff. Um, or you can go to, uh, you know, one of the places I'm writing about basketball right now is midmajormadness.com. It's an SP Nation blog. You can head over there um, and check some stuff out as well. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Primetime Mitch. So I'll tweet out, uh, you know, most of the things I write. I had to ask, how did you come up with the primetime Mitch handle? So I didn't come up with it. It's funny. Uh, you know, I had an English teacher at Warwick. Her name, it's kind of funny. Her name is Lauren Hill. Not to be confused with uh, with the singer from the Fugees. But uh, yeah, I had a teacher at Warwick. And uh, one day I was late to class and I was wearing a Deion Sanders Braves jersey. And I walked in and, uh, and you know, I was probably like 15 minutes late or something. And she was like, welcome to class, primetime Mitch. And it just kind of stuck. Uh, she called me that for basically the rest of the semester. And so did a couple other people. And I was around the time when I started, like when I got on Twitter and was trying to think of a handle and I just picked that and it just kind of stuck. So. <laughs> wow. And that's fitting, especially with the Braves jersey, especially now. Yep. Where you're at. Yeah, now I'm down here in Atlanta. So. Well, definitely, Mitch. I do appreciate it. And thanks a lot. And hope to talk to you in the future. Yeah, thanks, Earl. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And that concludes my interview with Mitchell Northam of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tune in next week as we get a little personal as I talk with my cousin, Theran Dennis, creator of the blog from Adelaide Field and a co-contributor to the Sports Refuge. We'll talk about the changing state of Sports Talk Radio, how he became a fan of soccer and baseball, and how the use of advanced statistics is changing the game of baseball. Want to listen to past episodes? You can find us on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening to the Sports Refuge podcast and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. Tune in next time for more interviews on sports, pop culture, and everything in between. For more information on the show, go to the Sports Refuge website at www.thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog.